Translations himself, Jay Rosen, Vice President at United Language Group, Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and CEO of Radical Compliance, and Jonathan Armstrong, a partner in Quartery Compliance in London. In today's episode, we take a look at several topics. Mike Volkoff discusses the internationalization of anti-corruption compliance and enforcement. Matt Kelly leads a deep dive into the Agricultural Bank of China enforcement sanction action and explain what's it mean, what it all means for compliance officers going forward. Jonathan Armstrong leads a discussion on the new French anti-corruption law, Sapin 2. And Jay Rosen takes a look at corruption through the lens of Paul Krugman's New York Times article on the invidiousness of corruption, focusing on the corrupt nature of compliance and undue influence. We go back to our weekly rants, and this week we have rants including and on the new UK surveillance law, the SEC domestic corruption enforcement action involving the United Airlines, and the chicken littles of the compliance world claiming the sky is falling. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to Episode 3 of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with another episode of Everything Compliance. As you recall, the Everything Compliance panelists include Michael Volkoff, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jay Rosen. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi there. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. So once again, from uh, all the way from uh, San Diego, California to London, we have uh, four of the top compliance practitioners to discuss some uh, issues. And today we're going to start off with uh, Mike Volkoff. And Mike, at the recent ACI National FCPA conference, Kara Brockmeyer and Dan Kahn talked about the increasing enforcement effort against corruption. And when I'd heard the DOJ talk about that before, I'd simply focused on cooperation uh, between prosecutors. But Kara and Dan both talked about a conference that the SEC and DOJ put on jointly. This was the third conference where they were training uh, prosecutors from outside the United States, and they both commented that this had gone far beyond the basics of anti-corruption prosecution, but uh, really they have developed a, a worldwide, not team, but a set of prosecutors who can prosecute cases. And that really led me to, to think that with uh, the Embraer case, with the Vimplecom case, we've now had uh, tangible examples of prosecutors bringing anti-corruption cases outside the United States, and really the internationalization of enforcement. Uh, are you seeing the same thing along these lines? Uh, absolutely, and I think the the trend has been going that way, and even back up for a second, uh, Tom, uh, for years, uh, the World Bank, for example, has been pro um, sponsoring a yearly conference at which uh, prosecutors from all over the world come and meet for a week. And uh, again, the focus is on establishing relationships and then how do you prosecute corruption-type cases. So the fact that the SEC and DOJ uh, have you know, run a similar program, obviously serves their interest in many ways. 
Uh, and sir, and there is this issue of internationalization of anti-corruption enforcement. I mean, let's take another step back, and not too many step back, steps back, but. Uh, for years, we used to hear criticism from uh, probably the chamber, some businesses, and you'd hear mutterings about how people would settle, let's say, with the Department of Justice and maybe, maybe bring along, you know, the uh, UK, uh, the SFO, for example, uh, in terms of a settlement uh, type of agreement, but then they'd have to go out and settle with all these other countries independently and prosecutors in, in in other countries and there was a lot of criticism that it was like the same set of acts but they were having to pay several uh different countries now a lot of that changed when more and more countries passed uh their own anti-corruption laws to try to get you know a piece of the pie as they say uh, to try to get into this what we're seeing now is uh the fruits of a lot of hard work in, internet, in the international context. And DOJ, you know, you'll see the FCPA prosecutors take off, uh, you know, to attend uh, conferences, international conferences with regard to this OECD type thing. And they have been pushing this for a long time because they're not only trying to get the cooperation through the multilateral, uh, you know, law enforcement treaties that are well known around the, around the world, uh, but they're now trying to do extend that to sort of co-op uh, cooperation among the prosecutors, which you need. It's not just law enforcement; you need prosecutors to cooperate. So, um, so in response to that, what we're seeing, I think, uh, you know, first off, there was the SBM offshore case, uh, right. which occurred where they deferred completely uh to the denmark i think it was the denmark prosecutors in that case correct or the netherlands but yeah and then we're also seeing because a lot of companies are for tax reasons are setting up their you know head quote unquote headquarters in the netherlands we've seen more and more sort of um uh you know efforts with regard to the netherlands uh as well and we saw that in vimplecom where they uh, are aggressively um, seeking uh, even more of a penalty uh, against uh, other companies, the parent company as well, besides Vimplecom. So what we're definitely seeing that Brazil and the United States have always had a good relationship on a law enforcement basis. They have a very effective MLAT treaty, same with countries like Colombia and things like that. So. The fact that we're that we're working closely, for example, in the Petrobras investigation with them is not surprising at all. What I think is uh, the real interesting issue that's coming up is China, uh, because right now uh, we have been the United States has been um, started for the last two to three years an information sharing program. Uh, with the Chinese, and obviously we help them by arresting several of their uh, sort of, the, you know, some of the people who fled to the United States or fled uh, to areas and uh, trying to, you know, evade the uh, Chinese uh, judicial system with regard to corruption and corruption proceeds. So um, I think you see the internationalization um, going on. I think the China situation could be a game changer in the sense of, if you can imagine how many cases we've had 
uh, in terms of the United States over the last two years, particularly the SEC, has been just pummeling uh, companies, health, and particularly in the medical device and pharma area, in China. And as more and more of that information becomes shareable and more and more information becomes usable, uh, we're going to see sort of, um, I think, some of the resistance to the Chinese judicial system, which is not known for fairness or you know due process, but nonetheless uh, is going to become a bigger issue. There are, uh, and I, I don't mean to be a doomsayer on this, there's, there is a limit, however, as to how far internationalization can go, in my view, because, uh, you know, we have our, each sovereign government has their own way of setting up whatever type of prosecution system they want to set up. And I don't think that it's fair to start to say that people have to adopt each other's system, whatever it may be. Uh, we criminalize uh, certain things that people don't criminalize in other countries. Um, other countries may have administrative fines and whatnot. But I do think the other area that this will have a big impact in uh, is going to be in sharing information and data privacy uh, issues that come up in international enforcement uh, matters all the time. In other words, you know, a lot of times people have to go over to China to look at documents, and they're not allowed to bring the documents back. They're not allowed to, uh, and you have to be careful to make sure that people in the United States don't have quote-unquote control over the documents, even when they're viewing them over, let's say, a webcast or something like that. So there are real data privacy issues that I think the more that law enforcement cooperates and the more that prosecutors uh, cooperate, I think you'll see sort of political pushes to ease some of the restrictions, at least as they apply to um, investigations and things like that. But I, you know, I think you've—it's—it's it's no wonder, and it's obvious—it's no wonder that Kara and uh, Dan uh, touted this, and they should, because I think um, they've worked really hard on it, um, even though people don't really see it. But for example, in, you know, Amber Rare was very well coordinated with a lot of police, a lot of investigators on both sides and prosecutors on both sides. And what's interesting to me in Amber Rare is you also have the criminal prosecutions of the individuals are not occurring in the United States. They're occurring in Saudi Arabia. They're occurring in Brazil uh, that emanate from the Amber Rare case. Um, so that sends, you know, uh, is that, uh, you know, satisfy the Yates memo? I don't know, you know, in a sense, there's individual culpability there for eight or nine people in Brazil. So, um, you know, we've also seen, obviously, in Bimplecom, we saw how the Netherlands, uh, you know, shared in this. And I think what's going to happen is the, the U.S. government has been very deferential, I think, or the U.S. Justice Department to other countries uh, who have skin in the game. In other words, people who put time and effort into this, uh, it's not like the department is going to say, I want the whole settlement. They're willing um, to you know, carve these up a little bit. And I think companies in the end uh, are going to do better on the whole to resolve as many countries as they can at once uh, and probably end up paying less. Um, you know, and you won't have as many sort of follow-on prosecutions as you would in the international context. Uh, 
And I think that's all a good thing. It's good for the system, I think. But it can't, but it can't lead to what I, the, the concern that I have is we can't standardize exactly however countries want to, you know, prosecute these cases. You know, uh, some countries don't want to make it a criminal prosecution. That's theirs, you know, that's up to them. But they can still extract fines or civil penalties or whatever. So that's, that's I don't want it to be uh, seen in this uh, new Trump era as a way to ram things down other countries' throats in terms of how this is going to be handled. I think it's going to be a more sort of uh, collaborative process. And hope, and I, and I think you made a really good point, Tom, uh, in in your article about how this. Um, makes it harder and harder for anybody to sort of change the direction of this program, particularly at the United States level. There's so much resources and investment in it, and it also is so lucrative for the U.S. government. That's one of the reasons that I could never see, uh, you know, like the, the new attorney general, assuming he gets um, confirmed, sitting there and saying, oh, well, let's just you know, take this system apart because the Chamber of Commerce wants us to do that. It's not going to happen. There's too many forces against it, and it's too important and lucrative to the United States Department of Justice. I mean, they make too much money from this. So uh, I, I don't see I, – I, it's interesting how all of these sort of trends in the internationalization, it, in a sense – the Justice Department and the career people have put in place a system that nobody can tinker with, except at the edges. You know, whether you're going to give 100% credit or whether you're going to decline prosecution, uh, you know, for somebody who cooperates and remediates, that that's fine. We can argue about those things, but the basic premise of this program, I think, is just going to keep tooling along. So those are my thoughts on on, on that issue. Anybody have any questions? Can I chip in, Mike? Um, Mike, sure. um, I, I think there are some really, really interesting points. My concern from an international perspective is, I mean, obviously we have had one case in the UK where the court seemed to say, no, the divvy up between the US and the UK authorities wasn't fair and the UK took too much. But, in, uh, but at the same time, I think there's an interesting uh, trend starting to emerge of when the US teams up with prosecutors in a, another country, that can distort the other country's system, both in terms of damages, which tend to be higher, the amount that's paid in the US tends to be higher for bribery in other countries, and, and in terms of sometimes people, and I've heard this talk about a couple of the specific examples that you discussed, people almost pleading guilty to offences that they don't really think are made out in local law, and, and the effect this could then have, because it's set a precedent in a foreign jurisdiction, that because corporations are thinking, well, I can get a global deal, and it might not be prosecutable in my home jurisdiction, but let's just have some finality and not raise any arguments that we might have available to us as a defense. So I agree with you that there's a, a definite trend of cooperation. If I look at it from a UK lens as well, I see that all of the recent SFO uh, 
the case is that I think all of them have a almost a thank you note at the end of the SFO's announcement to say, you know, mentioned in dispatches of the following countries who've cooperated. I don't think there's any in the last 18 months or so that hasn't had that international thank you right. note. But um, so, so I think internationalism is, you know, is definitely a thing. But my worry, and I don't know the answers, is is do these sort of settlements somehow undermine what's being done at a local level, particularly when the perception is that the U.S. takes too big a slice of the cake? You know, question mark in Siemens was the distribution fair, for example, between the German and the U.S. authorities? Well, you know, that's uh, what's interesting is. Uh, Think of the pattern here, because when uh, FCPA enforcement was ramped up in the United States, there were a lot of concerns about people agreeing to uh, sort of jurisdictional elements or other things that they don't think they could actually prove if they went to trial, nor or whether or not they were actually a violation of the FCPA. There were people who, you know, contended that. Uh, I don't think that's true, but I do think there were, you know, stretches of jurisdictional elements where people would say, boy, I, you know, I don't see any case law that supports that, but people were agreeing to it. And I think on the same way as this, as the international sort of system matures, you're going to see the same concerns coming out of constituent countries that have signed on to it, because it's going to mean pushing the law uh, or stretching the law a little bit on some of these settlements. They're not going to always be in the core capabilities uh, or the core sort of law areas for certain jurisdictions, particularly as you reach out to you know some of the less involved countries that may be cooperating simply because bank transactions went through their banking system and uh, they and they facilitated you know getting rather than going through the whole elaborate international you know, letters of rogatory process, they, um, you know, got, they short-circuited that with contacts at the Uruguay prosecutor's office. Mm -hmm. So I think you raise a really good concern. And, you know, it, it takes a bunch of stubborn Brits, like some of your judges, to say, <laughs> hey, you know what, this is going a little too far, and we, um, we're not going to sign on to this. And, you know, that's one of the costs, I think, of having judicial involvement in, in the approval of these things, which I think is actually a good thing for the system, as opposed to, you know, I, we do need people to watch out over your respective sovereign's laws. And so I don't have a problem with that. If anything, that means to me that as justice builds the system, that they've got to take sort of some regard for, you know, due proper regard for the local laws and the impact that it's going to have. What I don't want to see, like I said before, is I don't want to see the Justice Department ramming down their view to everybody and saying, you've got to follow this. I mean, that's just not fair. It's not the right way to do it. Um, but I think they're sensitive to that. I think they're, they may have to get some pushback. And I think People like the Brits or, you know, the French for sure are stubborn. And I don't, you know, we, and I think the, for example, I think the, um, out of the, uh, the Alstom case, there are a lot of bad feelings between the French and the Americans. What a surprise. 
in terms of how that case was resolved and the promises that the French made with regard to how they were going to locally prosecute it and turned out to do very little. So, um, you know, it goes both ways in terms of being too aggressive and trying to get people to do things or being disappointed by people. And I think that's just the nature of the beast because, you know, frankly, if I were the Brits or the French, I wouldn't want people telling me how to prosecute, you know, enforce my laws. That's up to me. You know, it's bad enough we have – if you sign on to a treaty, that's a different thing. Then you're saying I'm part of a community, the OECD and whatever. I'm part of that community, and I've signed on to it, and I've said I've agreed to this, and I will implement laws like this. But there's still discretionary issues that you need your judges, your people to prosecute in the way that's best for your country's interests. And, you know, with your all – Brexit and everything. Everything's about the Brits. Everything's about the Americans these days. You know, everybody wants to protect themselves first. So I think we we may see a little pushback in that, but I I don't see that trend, um, you know, really changing much as we go down the road here. So let me change uh, change focus just a little bit, Matt, uh, because you wrote about a very interesting enforcement action um, with Agricultural Bank of China and an enforcement action brought by the Department of Financial Services in the state of New York. And although this was a regulated industry, it got me wondering, under a Trump administration, could we potentially see other regulators start to bring more enforcement actions around compliance? I thought about that in the context of the um, uh, Federal Reserve Bank's portion of the J.P. Morgan Sons and Daughters settlement. So I was wondering if you might be able to take us through the Agricultural Bank of China enforcement action and what you may see it portends for compliance going forward. Sure. And, yeah, this was one of the more interesting uh, enforcement actions I've seen for a while. Um, This happened in early November, and it was Agricultural Bank of China, which has only one branch in the United States in New York City. But uh, it is a large bank globally. It is one of the largest in China. It's got $2.7 trillion in assets. So that puts AgBank right up there with Citibank, Bank of America. You know, this is a large institution that the state of New York decided to take on. Uh, the facts of the case are that uh, AgBank had terrible corporate compliance. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, and sidelined its chief compliance officer in the United States to the point that she actually resigned in early 2014. And shortly thereafter, most of her compliance staff left as well. Uh, So that is a bad sign that your organization does not take compliance very seriously. Uh, What really happened was AgBank opened for business in New York in 2012, It was doing some dollar clearing transactions in New York for global customers. Almost immediately, the bank examiners in New York started finding problems with uh, transaction monitoring and transaction details. They warned AgBank of China, clean this up. Not only did AgBank not clean this up, but its dollar clearing business was increasing, creating a bigger backload of questionable transactions And at the same time, the bank was not taking any steps to rectify its its deficiencies. Enter the, I guess, juicy stuff about the uh, compliance officer. 
she immediately saw these problems when she arrived in, I believe, 2013. She brought them to the bank's attention, the U.S. management, who basically said, we don't really want you to look at this, but we can't stop you, so I guess you have to go ahead, but don't expect us to cooperate. A whole lot of that attitude. Um, she had consulted with the Federal, uh, the Fed, Re Federal Reserve of New York, so suddenly the feds were also aware of this. And by 2014, this situation had deteriorated so much that she left, her staff left. And then finally, we saw that uh, Ag Bank was fined in 2016, just about, I guess, five weeks ago, for $215 million. Even for a large bank, $215 million is enough of a pain that you know, this is going to be unpleasant. What I found most interesting about this settlement was more how the state agency in New York, the Department of Financial Services, DFS, how is DFS actually going to try to enforce the settlement that it reached with the Ag Bank? Um, some of the settlement terms include that Ag Banks are going to have to hire an independent monitor who will be chosen by DFS. Uh, a new chief compliance officer must be brought in with, quote, full autonomy and independence. Uh, and then also annual risk-based internal audit plans approved by the board of directors uh, and various other um, items, a lot of written plans that are going to have to be implemented. So this is the sort of thing that I know compliance officers at first would say, yeah, this sounds great. This is what I need. You know, I'm going to staple this settlement to my CFO and general counsel's forehead. I'm unclear how the state of New York is actually going to enforce this against a large overseas bank. Um, in theory, this board of directors over in Beijing, perhaps they will care much more about compliance and risk-based audit plans. But uh, what's that going to look like? Who does this chief compliance officer report to? Um, you know, there's a lot of governance questions here that I don't see how the mechanics of this are actually going to filter out. So it was a case worth watching, especially if you are a compliance officer in financial services, and above all, if you're in financial services in New York, because it does show this state agency, they're here to play. Um, and I think that we're going to see a more muscular state agency there in New York, uh, regardless of what the Trump administration might do. And I do wonder if there's going to be some sort of federal state tensions here. Uh, the State DFS is probably a great political stepping stone for those New York politicians who might have higher ambitions. I know we will all be shocked to hear that state enforcement people have political ambitions and might put it to good use, but it could happen. Um, and lastly, for foreign banks with a branch in New York, and there's a lot of foreign banks who have one branch in New York, and that's all because they have to be in the U.S. when they don't even really like it but you can't avoid it. This is going to be a big wake-up call for them that you know, you're going to have to pay attention to compliance like U.S. banks because the state is going to force you to do it. So I thought it was fascinating. Um, Tom, to your point about does this mean state agencies might try to step up attention to compliance in a Trump administration where the feds might soft-pedal or back-pedal this? Uh, Kind of, I think it depends on who you are. Certainly, we'll see states, you know, continuing to do their usual things, but um, it really depends on what the state 
law allows a state level regulator to do, state of New York gives a lot of power to its banking and financial services regulator now. That office was consolidated and created in 2011. It's got a lot of power. Um, not all states do. It is worth noting that a lot of states are in, the legislatures are in Republican hands. So I don't necessarily see that there's going to be a big push for more regulation or enforcement at the state level, except states with big banking industries, that would be New York, California, Massachusetts, in uh, North Carolina, they're all going to be in Democratic governor hands as of next year. Most of them are, except now for North Carolina, but that's about to turn Democratic. Uh, and then you would see, uh, presumably, more regulators at the state who have some ambitions for stronger regulation. Um, my other big question here, is, however, is aside from what state regulators might do to enforce, would we see state attorneys general in Democratic states try to sue the Trump administration on various grounds at various times to block federal enforcement plans, much like we saw Republicans, uh, Republican states suing the Obama administration. Are we going to see this flipped around? I don't necessarily know how that might work, especially if Democrats are going to try to block Republicans rolling things back. Don't forget that Republican states sued the Obama administration for rolling things forward. So there's a whole lot of mess here, but uh, the Ag Bank settlement in New York, like especially if you're in compliance and financial services, you really want to give that a read and just wonder how's this going to work in practice and are we going to see it more often? Because I think it's kind of a big deal for that industry. So that's really interesting, Matt, on your thoughts about uh, state Democratic administrations bringing suit against uh, potential actions from a, a Trump administration certainly in the great state of Texas, where our attorney general was quoted as saying, I wake up, I sue the federal government, I go home and go to bed. We have a well-worn history of that. But uh, suing to stop a rollback would be taking it to perhaps a different level than we've seen in the past. Um, really, any thoughts on how that might get affected or accomplished? Um, it's hard to say. And I don't know what the legal grounds necessarily would be, especially because, first, we don't know what the Trump administration may or may not roll back. But you can see some speeches, uh, say, from uh, Jerry Brown in California. You know, Jerry Brown, very early after the Trump uh, after the Trump campaign won, came out and said, you know, we're a democratic state with democratic values and we're going to stick with those. Um, and then I think you would probably see Andrew Cuomo and Governor of New York would also say that, um, you know, that New York has very clear ideas about what it wants to do. They're going to wait and see. But I think around environmental protection, I think maybe around consumer product safety, you might see some resistance from Democratic states there. By the way, I should uh, correct myself. I did say Massachusetts was a Democratic state. Technically, we do have a Republican governor, although... That's really, I think, almost for show. Um, you know, he is a very, <laughs> by Republican standards, he does not support the Trump administration. But, um, you know, we are very much in the blue state field. So I, I don't necessarily know how this is going to work, but there are already plenty of states that lean Democratic who are going to say, no, 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 we don't want to go with what the feds might try to push nationwide. And I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see how that dynamic plays out. You know, additionally, we've got some other regulatory bodies um, 
maybe quasi-regulatory bodies such as the Chicago Board of Trade, the New York Stock Exchange, or other bodies that would have uh, some sort of jurisdiction over publicly traded companies, uh, and you know perhaps they might actually do something uh, if there was not action at the federal level. Because I'm I'm very intrigued when you have a vacuum in enforcement, there's usually groups that move into that vacuum. And if there's a vacuum of, at the federal level, state state groups will move into that. And if there's a vacuum mm-hmm. at the state level, the federal groups will move in. So uh, I think regulators from other areas we may not have seen as active could well step up. And I think this uh, Agricultural Bank of China case really might be a forerunner of some things to come. I would very much say that you know that's possible, but any compliance officers who might be doom and gloom that you know we're going to be unemployed because everything's going to get rolled back, get over it. You know, this this is going to be a a key issue for compliance officers for quite a while. You know, compliance is not going away. That's for sure. So, Jonathan, if I could uh, turn to you, if I will look across the pond and uh, ask you to even look across that uh, lovely bottle of, body of water, the English Channel. Because uh, Cordery recently wrote about a new French anti-bribery law called Sapin 2. And uh, certainly, as Mike Volkoff indicated in some of his remarks, there's been a difference in prosecution philosophy between the United States and France around uh, corruption issues. Part of that may have been because there was a difference in anti-corruption laws. But did the, does the French law begin to address those? Or what do you see from your perspective? Yeah, I think this echoes some of what Mike said about internationalization and what Matt just said about compliance isn't coming away, uh, going away. And I think obviously France has had anti-corruption law for many years. Um, even one of the presidential candidates could personally attest to that. But it's probably not been enforced as much as one would expect on a global stage. And I think in addition, some in France have been concerned about almost the cash drain, the significant amounts that have been paid to the U.S. authorities for bribery from French corporations. If you look at the top 10, for example, FCPA actions, then France has three places in the in the top 10, Alstom with $772 million fine, Total with $398 million and Technip with 338 And so, obviously, when combined, that's a big number. Some, of course, in France are just not uh, are driven not only by the uh, amount of cash that's going out of the jurisdiction, but also think that clamping down on bribery is, is a good thing to do. And so this new law, uh, Sapinter uh, 2 or Sapinter um, in, in French, is seeking to address some of that. And I think we'll also have some really interesting ramifications for compliance globally, one of which is that Sapinter gives extra support to whistleblowers. And traditionally, of course, there's been a real area of conflict for U.S. multinationals particularly in things like Sabanox, the whistleblower helplines, where the uh, French authorities, the French data privacy authorities, have taken action against some U.S. multinationals for running whistleblower lines into France. 
in some respects, the international compliance officer's job will get easier, I think, post Sapanda, because, of course, those systems in part will be required by local French law. And as a result, uh, provided that the helpline is uh, presented the right way, I think some of those ob obstructions will be easier to jump over. But the new law was adopted on the uh, 8th of November 2016. There are still some uh, small things to do before it formally passes into law. We expect it will apply probably from the late spring of 2017. And as well as increasing the, the powers of the prosecutors, it has some, um, if you like, proactive elements to it for those organisations that employ more than 500 employees or uh, and have a turnover of more than 100 million euros. And, and again, I think this is a trend that we've been seeing uh, globally, if you like, with the almost the reversal of the burden of proof with some compliance legislation. And in some respects, although it's not a strict reversal of the burden of proof, this is similar uh, to the UK Bribery Act, where um, obviously we have a failure to prevent offence and Saponda has these uh, mandatory compliance programme requirements. Uh, another aspect I think that's uh, influenced by the UK, who in turn were influenced by the US, is uh, the possibility of entering into deferred prosecution agreements. So we're likely to see that become a possibility. And that, of course, opens up the possibility of doing deals on a global basis for organisations like Total and the possibility of getting a, a once and for all settlement when they discover wrongdoing. And additionally, we're going to have a new equivalent of our serious fraud office and sort of a bit like your DOJ called the uh, Agence Francaise Anti-Corruption, the AFA, which will have extra resources to get involved on the uh, international stage and will be led by a, a, a judge who's had experience of bringing anti-corruption cases in the past. The one caveat I would say about whistleblower protection, where I foresee difficulties further down the line is that whistleblowers under the French legislation seem to get protection if they're good faith whistleblowers with no financial benefit. Now, how this will play out with a whistleblower who's potentially incentivized, for example, by the Dodd-Frank provisions and they're on a bounty uh, remains to be seen. I, I see uh, that whilst We've resolved some of the cultural differences between the US and France in the treatment of whistleblowers. Obviously, the monetization of a whistleblower claim seems to be a step too far for the French at this stage. So that, that there may be some, some conflicts ahead there. But on balance, I think that most of the provisions of, of Sapando would be recognizable to a US or UK listener and it seems to signal in, an intent from the French to get with the program. Uh, and I was over in Paris a, a few weeks ago 
all of the soundings we took locally are that there, this law will be enforced. It isn't just a sort of dead statute. And the main reason for that, again, I, I suspect, is the amount of hurt to the Treasury in some respects, uh, rather than a um, uh, you know motivation for other reasons. These are big numbers, big fines to big French financial institutions. And those that I was speaking to say that that's the, the real signal for France to play its part. So, Jonathan, in terms of what a compliance practitioner or indeed a uh, corporation might need to do, do you see any additional steps that a corporate compliance officer or a corporate compliance program need to initiate? But if they generally have a program which follows the uh, strictures of the, the UK Bribery Act, the United States uh, FCPA, the Brazilian Clean Companies Act, they're, they're probably going to be okay. What should be the, the corporate compliance practitioner's response uh, that, that Cordery might advise clients on? I, I think from our point of view, I think if you've got a good program that's going to work, you know, under the, that legislation that you've mentioned, and, and particularly uh, things like the uh, principles uh, of good compliance, let's call them that, under the UK bribery act, then I think that your work in terms of adapting that for your French operations isn't going to be significant. Translation, of course, uh, I'm sure Jay could speak to, is probably a wise idea if a regulator is going to ask to see your processes. Even if you've got a relatively small headcount, it's probably a good idea to let that regulator see your materials in French rather than English. And I think we will get some uh, nuances as we head towards this um, implementation phase. As I say, there are still a few uh, legislative boxes to be checked slash ticked. And, um, and then, then we might, might improve. But my expectation is that a good global compliance program will get you in the high 80s, the low 90s in terms of percentage compliance. So I think that will be a great framework. Uh, of course, there are uh, some complexities for some organizations in terms of things like joint venture operations as ever, where uh, that will be challenging. And I think what we can also expect as well is that those organizations that trade heavily with large French corporations can expect the usual set of questionnaires to, to be delivered as they try and uh, channel these measures through the supply chain as well. Mike or Matt, do you guys have any uh, questions or comments of Jonathan? I will trust Jonathan's expertise here on SAPN2 and uh, I'm uh, when I've looked at it, I have uh, my general take has been that it's not going to be a terribly onerous event for those people already compliant with the FCPA. But as with all things France, the proof will be in the enforcement. And I look forward to seeing what that might look like sometime. Yeah, I think that's right. That's where, uh, yeah, the proof will be in the creme brulee. <laughs> 
<laughs> with, with that, uh, and certainly a, a excellent segue into speaking with Mr. Translations himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, uh, you have talked about the need to translate into local languages, obviously for content and for business process. But Jonathan brings up a great point, which is, uh, what do you do when the regulators come knocking? And so how does translation of your uh, best practices compliance program into a local language. How would you see that in the Tom Fox document, document, document mantra? I would, you know, just see that as uh, another step towards a company's commitment to, uh, you know, having its documentation available for all employees to read. So. When you say document, 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 but if the only document is an English code of conduct and policies and procedures, uh, that's not going to get you very far. So um, especially with uh, how particular we all know the French are, I think it would really uh, behoove them to have these documents in French so they can present to the local regulators if they ever come and knock it. Jay, you had a couple of interesting posts recently where you put up a actually an editorial of Paul Krugman uh, in the New York Times where he talked about corruption, not in terms of specific dollars, bags of cash, but really influence and incentives. Now, he was speaking about it in, in the context of President-elect Trump and his administrations, but I was really intrigued by that approach particularly when you consider the J.P. Morgan enforcement action uh, and even the prior Qualcomm and Bank of New York Mellon enforcement actions in hiring as really ways to influence foreign officials and the nefarious nature of that. So what did you see from Krugman and, and how might we draw lessons from that? Yeah, um, so Krugman basically, um, you know, ever since uh, President-elect Trump won the election, uh, Many parties have been calling for him and his family business partners to remove themselves from day-to-day uh, -day operations and set up the Trump Organization of a Blind Trust. And, um, you know, this is probably a difficult thing to do considering the Trump empire concerns real estate, and it's very hard to determine the value of these assets. Um, in his opinion piece, Krugman looked at the potential for corruption within the Trump administration, as you said, and he says it's really not about the money, but it's about the incentives that present the problem. And uh, Krugman argues that um, a president's policies usually reflect a combination of practicality, you know, what will work best, ideology, what fits uh, that person's preconceptions. But now we've got a third factor to consider, what policies can officials uh, undertake that will really personally uh, allow them to monetize these uh, actions. So um, one interesting thing that we just saw last week in uh, Indiana is that um, Carrier Air Conditioning, which is a subsidiary of defense giant United Technologies, was uh, strongly convinced by the president-elect not to close a factory in Indiana coincidentally, home state of the Vice President Pence. And I'm wondering if a bill, the billions of dollars that the federal government spends with United Technology had anything to do with this reversal. 
So Krugman touches on um, next in this article about for-profit education and Betsy DeVos's nomination as Secretary of Education. Sounds a lot like, um, can anybody say Trump University? And Trump's actual infrastructure plan. So uh, next he hypothesizes about the potential impact of corruption on foreign policy. And I think this is the meat of where we want to go, that countries like Britain or Canada would not be able to curry favor with the incoming administration to waive regulations to, say, build a new Trump golf course in Toronto. But someone like our good friend uh, Russia's Vladimir Putin might be able to funnel vast sums of money to the man in exchange for potential withdrawal of uh, security guarantees for the Baltic states. So one would like to hope that national security officials are explained to Mr. Trump just how destructive it would be to let business considerations drive his foreign policy. Uh, but reports say that Trump has barely met with those officials refusing to get the briefings that are normal for a president-elect. But one good thing that we know is that at real Donald Trump is uh, still staying up at least until 11.40 uh, p.m. on Saturday night and critiquing Alec Baldwin's Trump impersonation on SNL. So, uh, Well, Jay, let, that, me, uh, let me just ask you, and probably Mike Volkov is the only person on this uh, podcast old enough to – to remember this, but uh, President Kennedy was uh, very famously did something called jawboning, which he would go to the bully pulpit of the presidency to do things like um, suggest to the U.S. steel industry that if they didn't roll back a price increase, that uh, the U.S. government might just go overseas to buy uh, its steel. And that seemed then that was effective. They did roll their prices back because the president objected in that manner. How is what Kennedy did really different than than Trump, uh, you know, calling up Carrier and saying, I don't like this. Well, hey, uh, I, I wanted to jump in here just to show my age. Uh, not only uh, we have a little bit of history that goes even before uh, Kennedy, where, uh, do you recall when there was the strike and Trump and Truman, uh, seized the, uh, the manufacturing facilities? It was coal mine. Uh, so I think. Seized the coal mine. Uh, yeah, coal. Yeah, exactly. So look, I think, uh, Kennedy, the, the question that comes up with Trump is also that apparently there was some ownership interest that he himself might have in, in owning stock of United Technologies. Um, but I don't even know that he's aware of that or that that motivated his, his actions. But I think a lot of this gets down to, you know, appearance. Uh, Kennedy may have said, we're going to go, um, you know, uh, purchase our steel from overseas, but at the same time, I don't know that Kennedy had any investment in any particular business that was going to succeed as a result of that or could possibly succeed or gain from that. What I think Krugman and what I think Jay articulated very well is there are some real sort of uh, interconnections here that raise issues with regard to Trump and with regard to the appearance issues. I mean, we as lawyers, uh, we try to uh, address those issues, although the lines get blurred a lot these days, but in terms of conflicts of interest. But it seems to me like we have some real issues that have to be fleshed out uh, with regard to Trump's tentacles. And the problem is we don't really know 
where all of his businesses extend into. And we've never gotten that sort of transparency. But it is a unique situation, that's for sure. Tom, can I jump in here too? Sure. I, I think one critical distinction is that Kennedy and Truman were generally talking to a whole industry. Trump is clearly talking to specific companies. So that's one difference. And secondly, we do have to think about his, I guess, even if he doesn't consciously grasp this or not, and I'm guessing not, um, the intermingling of his personal business interest and state policy. Um, the thing that jumped out at me over this weekend wasn't so much Carrier, which was a bad move on Trump's part, but his call to Taiwan when he has business interest in Taiwan. If I were Beijing, the first thing I would do would be to call up Taiwan because they do have interests that intersect and they do communicate with each other and say, we'll give you a break on these issues that are creating tension between us. You put his, the Trump Tower in Taiwan, you put that on the slow road and we'll get back to you on when to put it on the fast road. Then China negotiates with the United States and when we are in some tense point, Beijing calls Taiwan back up and says, now you have to call Washington and say, we're going to put, we think you should side with China. By the way, we're going to give your tower permissions here. And you know, there are now multiple ways for China to advance its own interests because it can attack the United States through two different points, through the public policy point with Trump at the head of the federal government, plus Trump's personal business interests, which you know, until now we've never had this before. Um, you know, Donald Trump is just going to set a tremendously terrible example for conflicts of interests and tone at the top unless he makes changes that uh, you know, have to be made. And I don't buy it when he says there's real estate. It's difficult for me to liquidate. You know, if he's serious about running the United States government, all he has to do is cut the price. The faster he cuts it, the faster it gets sold. It's bogus when he says he can't do this, as it is so bogus with much of what he says. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how all of this filters out. I think that there's going to be a lot of corporate governance concerns about, you know, does Carrier have to disclose its conversations? If you are a competitor to UTC, do you have to um, disclose as a risk factor that maybe UTC will get better breaks from the federal government because it did a favor to Donald Trump in Indiana? We have no idea how this is supposed to work, and least of all Donald Trump and his people. So, Jay, I wanted to turn uh, just a, a little bit because you had another very interesting post about the remarks of Sally Yates at the ACI uh, National FCPA Conference where she talked about individual accountability. And what about those remarks really struck you? Uh, yeah, thank, thanks for bringing that one up, Tom. So, um, you know, you were actually there, so I'm kind of getting my information uh, secondhand by reading the uh press release of the remarks from the DOJ, but uh, I got the feeling that um, Deputy AG's speech sounded a lot like a valedictory address, and she recalled her professional lifelong battle against corruption, and in the address, she detailed um, how her namesake memo brought out the concept of voluntary self-disclosure and how this has, in effect, become a, a tenth standalone Philip factor. And, um, you know, these are the factors on which you're going to judge a case's merits and figure out, um, you know, what type of uh, treatment and what type of penalty they may have to pay. 
And um, through recent enforcement actions, it's pretty clear that there's a difference in treatment between those companies who self-disclose versus those who don't. And um, so that was one big point she made. The other thing that she announced was there's a new resource available for the FCPA ethics and compliance community, uh, which we'll have in our show notes. And it's uh, www.justice.gov forward slash individual dash accountability. And um, she said, this would be a great place for you to go if you have questions about you know, a transaction you're contemplating or some issue that you found. Uh, and she also said that it's actually just as easy and probably more efficient to pick up the phone and call your friendly local AUSA. But I, I doubt how many people will actually take her up on that offer. Um, she closed with a prediction that in the coming months, we will see a high percentage of cases accompanied by criminal or civil actions against individuals, which is really the theme about the Yates memo. And um, here's the meat of what we're coming from, is that the quote was, individual accountability isn't a democratic or a Republican principle, but it's a core value of our criminal justice system that perseveres regardless of which party is in power. And I also touched, touched upon this in my um <coughs> and read about the next prosecutor up. And I think um, we're going to, I think, wrap up and get into our rants. And if I can take the first rant, uh, you know, I think there, there are too many folks out there that it's chicken little and the sky is falling. And either the five of us are involved in groupthink or we all understand that the compliance uh, on a global nature and on a local nature is becoming well embedded within the corporations, within the bar. And I, we don't really collectively see it going anywhere. So, um, you know, I, I hope we haven't missed that one like we missed the election. But I think we all can feel safe that there are enough people pulling for this globally. And, um, you know, the unknowns that Matt spoke about is, you know, exactly what are those conflicts of interest and, and what kind of new issues are we going to see uh, developing under the Trump administration because we definitely are going into uncharted territory. Well, Jay, thanks for uh, leading off our rant section. Jonathan, why don't we just go in reverse order? Jonathan, what's uh, either do you want to rant, rant about or uh, being English, what's in the front of your mind? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's front of my mind. It's a semi-rant, I guess. Um, uh, you may not know, a slightly obscure piece of legislation came in in the UK last week, which gives the Serious Fraud Office and others uh, more detailed powers to intercept communications and also requires communications providers, so that's telcos, uh, ISPs, etc., to retain logs of who contacted whom for 12 months to allow the SFO and others to intercept that data. And this seems to me to be something we should very much look as a global trend as regulators march towards using big data for regulation. Obviously, that's an enormous pot of data. The SFO in their last accounts disclosed the fact that they're buying this new supercomputer to sweat big data. They already uh, use autonomy, so a, a system that enables 
to do that? And, and how do we know that they use autonomy? Because they had perhaps a very unusual disclosure that they had to disclose that they were investigating the autonomy acquisition using autonomy software to do the investigation. And it just seemed to me to be an interesting change to the rules. And we have seen in some recent investigations the fact that the uh, uh, prosecutors have said that they've been using mobile phone records, uh, cell phone location data, et cetera, et cetera, in the prosecution. And I think we can see more sweating of electronic data. We know that executives are particularly bad at not only doing bad things at times, but also recording them, particularly in emails <laughs> late, late on a Friday night when they're what we English say, tired and emotional. And so these emails are going to come back to haunt executives. The next 10 years is going to give us a lot of fun with these new records that the SFO will be able to obtain. Matt Kelly, what's at the front of your mind or what do you want to rant about? So here's what caught my mind recently. On December 2nd, the SEC enforced uh, an action against United Airlines. They fined them $2.4 million for books and records violations where United had altered its flight schedule to be more accommodating to the then head of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Once that scandal came out that United was currying favor with the head of the Port Authority, uh, he lost his job and United eventually then returned its schedule to normal practice. But nonetheless, what's interesting here is that if New York and New Jersey had been a foreign country, this would have been a clear-cut case of FCPA violation. Really what they've done is taken the spirit of the FCPA's books and records violation and applied it domestically. And I've already seen one person say this is the first ever case of uh, a domestic Corrupt Practices Act enforcement. Um, I'm very curious to see where this goes because we do not actually have a domestic Corrupt Practices Act that the SEC could do this. On the other hand, very clearly, United investors were somehow wronged, not to a great extent, but they were, not to mention the poor minions who were flying in and out of uh, New York and New Jersey. So I'm very curious to see, is the SEC trying to establish a new doctrine here? We're going to see this more often. Is somebody going to try and shoot this down? Will this all go away when the Trump administration comes in? Nobody knows, but it's an enforcement action that caught my eye. It's a very interesting one. I've been thinking about it uh, as well. So I think, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Volkoff had to leave us. So that will conclude episode three of Everything Compliance. Gentlemen, as always, it's been a great pleasure, pleasure and honor to uh, be with you on this podcast. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. I have two requests of you. The first is if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, if you would rate this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. It would help our rankings. The second is we'd love to do a mailbag episode. So if you have any questions you'd like to uh, email into the uh, Everything Compliance Gang, you can uh, address them to the podcast or you can address them to the individual uh, panelists. Shoot me an email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox, and I would like to thank you for listening to episode three of Everything Compliance. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.